This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, July 14th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead on our program, State Senator Jonathan Dismang discusses what likely will and likely won't be included in an upcoming special session of the Arkansas Legislature. In about 10 minutes, Randy Simmons, artist, poet, author, and co-founder of Def Jam Poetry on HBO, talks to us about his work and his passion of bringing art of all kinds to everybody. He'll be performing at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art Friday night, and with us just ahead on the show. First, with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, dozens of crisis pregnancy centers in Arkansas are preparing to respond to women unable to obtain surgical or medical abortions, now banned under state law. To help, the Arkansas legislature appropriated a million dollars earlier this year to supply grants to the pro-life resource centers. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with several center directors, a state lawmaker, and the state's leading pro-life leader to bring us this story. Crisis pregnancy centers, also known as pregnancy resource centers, serve the maternity needs of mostly working poor or impoverished pregnant teens and women, as well as teens and women struggling with unintended or unwanted pregnancies. Centers first emerged after abortion was first legalized by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973. They tend to be pro-life and most have religious ties. As many as 50 crisis pregnancy centers operate around Arkansas, among 3,500 nationwide. Informed Choices Women's Center operates in Mountain Home and Harrison. Nicole Skidmore serves as director. We offer medical-grade pregnancy tests. We have limited ultrasounds. We do STD testing for males and females, and we also do education classes. Crisis pregnancy centers are not licensed medical clinics, but may hire medical staff to conduct certain medical procedures, such as prenatal ultrasounds used to verify a viable pregnancy. Informed Choices last year served around 250 clients for free. Yeah, we're completely donor-funded. On June 24th, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson held a press conference to announce all forms of abortions are now banned in Arkansas. Within hours of the U.S. Supreme Court reversing Roe v. Wade, Hutchinson then announced a special appropriation to help crisis pregnancy centers. I want to emphasize that we need, as a state and as a nation, to continue to support women who have unwanted pregnancies, and for some, they see abortion as the only solution. And that is the reason the legislature anticipated perhaps this moment, or just simply anticipating the need, provided $1 million to pregnancy centers across the state of Arkansas. The million-dollar appropriation enacted under Senate Bill 102, now Act 187, was decided by Arkansas lawmakers 79 to 19 in early March during the 2022 fiscal session. Republican State Representative Robin Lundstrom, District 87, Springdale, voted for the measure. Regardless of what Roe versus Wade, this was a freestanding bill to help women if they choose to carry their child and um, help women in need. 
As many as 3,000 teens and women would annually obtain abortions in Arkansas leading up to the ban, according to the Pro-Choice Guttmacher Institute, and it remains legal for now in Arkansas for teens and women seeking to terminate a pregnancy to travel out of state to terminate a pregnancy. Kansas is closest, but Planned Parenthood Great Plains has stated in previous reporting that its three Kansas-based clinics are now overwhelmed by out-of-state demand, including from Arkansas. The two remaining closest states are Colorado and Illinois. Representative Lundstrom says the ban is shifting the paradigm for women's reproductive health in Arkansas. I think everybody's talking about the issues which impact women and their health and their birth control choices. And, And I think that's a really, really good thing. And hopefully each individual woman will get um, as much information as possible about what birth control choices that she can use. And I hope young women that are in their teen years will choose abstinence. And if they don't, I hope they will talk to their parents. And then um, if they choose to be sexually active, they will look at what birth control works for them. Lundstrom believes contraceptives are not next to be outlawed in Arkansas. She also expects the Arkansas abortion ban won't overwhelm pregnancy crisis centers. But Dana Schwedel, executive director of Loving Choices, which serves over a thousand women a year before the abortion ban, is beginning to see an uptick in new clients. Oh, definitely. I've already seen an increase just since Friday. Schwedal manages two pregnancy crisis centers, one in Rogers, the other in Fayetteville. Our mission is to provide outstanding counseling and limited medical services to any woman who may find herself experiencing a reproductive health crisis. Whether it's an unplanned pregnancy or a sexually transmitted disease, we give unconditional care to preserve and protect human life so our clients can find hope. The nonprofit Loving Choices provides parenting mentorships, she says. We also mentor the guys decides to parent. We put them into parenting classes where they learn to be great moms, great dads, and they earn mommy and daddy bucks. And they use that in our boutique where they buy diapers and wipes and maternity clothes, baby clothes, cribs, whatever they need for their baby. Prenatal and maternity supplies provided to clients at no cost, but... Schwedal says she won't apply for any pregnancy crisis funding from the state. Well, they have a lot of strings that are attached to government funding, and we're not willing to follow some of their guidelines that are their strings, so uh, we're not accepting their funds. Thank you. And what are those strings? Well, they just speak into how we can uh, speak to our girls, what we can share with them. They have to, they decide what we can and can't say to them, and we just don't want to be limited. We followed up with Schwedal by email on that point to check if her pregnancy crisis center staff counsels women differently, for example, on how to obtain a safe abortion. They do not, she emailed back. Such pro-life centers do post medical and surgical abortion FAQs on websites to attract women seeking abortions. One crisis pregnancy center director, which serves a rural Ozarks region, declined to be interviewed. She fears being targeted by pro-choice militants who are reportedly escalating activities post-row reversal. Right-to-life militants have reportedly escalated attacks on urban abortion clinics leading up to the recent Supreme Court decision. Rose Mims, director of Arkansas Right to Life, established in 1974 an affiliate of the National Right to Life Committee, was attending a national convention when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. We were elated, you know, that finally 
the Supreme Court recognized that there was no right to abortion in our Constitution. So that was a fantastic, awesome uh, moment uh, in our fight for life. Arkansas Right to Life lists the name and contact information for all crisis pregnancy centers in Arkansas on its website at ARTL.org. I know the Crisis Pregnancy Center work because I was a volunteer myself at a Crisis Pregnancy Center for five years before I came to work for Arkansas Right to Life. So I'm familiar with their work. It's expanded. I think even you would be surprised at the services that they do offer because many of them are what they consider medical. They, you know, offer free ultrasounds. They have an ultrasonographer on staff. They have RNs on staff, you know, that help women uh, with whatever uh, circumstances they're in or situations, mothers, families, in fact, but services for fathers also and families, parenting. Mim says the legislature is stepping forward to assist teens and women struggling with unwanted pregnancies. Last session in 2021, there was a law passed uh, It's called EMMA, Every Mom Matters Act, and it will be a, a statewide data uh, base that will take calls from women all across Arkansas that are pregnant, that need services, or that are mothers and need services, you know, with whatever they may need that will uh, connect them to either crisis pregnancy center, a local health department, you know, other types of services uh, through Medicaid um, that can help with whatever needs they have. So there's been a lot done. Informed Choices Crisis Pregnancy Center Director Nicole Skidmore says her board of directors will decide to apply for a grant once details are released. Scott Harden, spokesperson for the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration, has been charged by the state legislature with creating the Pregnancy Resource Center grant program. In an email, Harden wrote rules first have to be drafted. Once approved by the governor's office and Arkansas Legislative Council, it will go into effect. He provided no timeline. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Department of Transportation is accepting comments on a draft plan to build electric vehicle charging stations across the state. According to a news release, the public can weigh in through July 19th. The final plan will be submitted to the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation by August 1st. Talk Business and Politics reports the draft plan shows where new charging stations would be located. Money to install the stations will come from the one2 trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure law. States are required to submit their plans to the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program to receive funding. The state would need to build 15 electric vehicle charging stations, with one being located every 50 miles along interstates. Arkansas needs more than $61 million to meet the program's requirements. Not everybody learns to ride a bicycle when they are young. And to help adults who might not be confident on two wheels, Experience Fayetteville is helping offer free adult first ride classes. Experience Fayetteville is partnering with Trailblazers to present the classes. Bikes for the three different 90-minute classes will be provided by Pedal It Forward. Support for the program comes from the Cyclocross Legacy Fund. That's made up of funds from the 2022 Walmart UCI Cyclocross World Championships that took place in Fayetteville in January. First class, Saturday from 10 to 1130, and it's indoors at the Yvonne Richardson Center in Fayetteville. Other classes are set for August and September. To attend the free classes, you can register at Eventbrite by looking for 
Trailblazers. And the annual Fill the Bus school supply event will be back at certain Walmart supercenters later this month. Sponsored by United Way of NWA, 13 area school districts will benefit from the drive. The United Way is seeking volunteers to help with the drive that takes place July 29th and 30th. That's a Friday and Saturday. Volunteer shifts start at 8.30, 11, and 1 each day. More details at unitedwaynwa.org. On stage now at Theater Squared is Flex, the world premiere play by Arkansas playwright Candris Jones that has all the fierce athleticism and swagger of a four-quarter basketball game. It's 1997. The WNBA is winning, but in Plain Hole, Arkansas, harsh reality is ruining the perfect play on the court. Will the off-court fouls of the Lady Train basketball team tear them apart? That's Flex on stage now. 479-777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Arts exhibit The Dirty South is here through July 25th. This weekend, the museum is hosting a series of events connected to the exhibit. Friday night, guitarist Vernon Reed, formerly of the band Living Color, jazz bassist Dwayne Dolphin, and poet, writer, and artist Danny Simmons will collaborate for an evening of spoken word, jazz, and funk. This week, we reach Danny Simmons at his Philadelphia home and art studio by Zoom. Simmons is a co-founder of Def Jam Poetry on HBO, an abstract artist, poet, and author of several collections of poetry and works of fiction. And during our conversation, you'll hear him refer to his brothers, Russell, co-founder of Def Jam Records, and Run, a founding member of Run DMC. I started the conversation with Randy Simmons by asking about his desire to share the world of art with others and help young artists develop their work. Actually, that's that's way, way, way more important than my own personal art career. Not to put down my personal art career, I love it and I, I love what I do. I, I was just commenting and having a conversation this morning. It, it, art is such an important part of people's lives. It changes people's life trajectory. It, it enhances them, it expands their consciousness. I mean, they do better if it's kids, they do better in school. If it's human beings, they do better talking to each other. And, you know, I grew up in a household um, where service was important, especially to my father. When I was a little kid, he, he used, uh, one of his weekend jobs was working in the homeless shelter for kids. And he used to just drop me in there with the rest of the kids like I, like I lived here and took me on civil rights marches when I was six. Um, his whole life was dedicated to he worked for the Board of Education. He worked with kids. So his whole life was really dedicated to our community and to the empowerment and improvement of African-Americans. So I grew up with that as a big part of my life. So when, and, I, and I actually was a social worker. That's what I went to school for. Um, and so, you know, the art career is, is fine, but I saw art more as a vehicle for social change than anything else. That's what I saw deaf poetry as when I created that. And that's what I, my art galleries, all about community and community access and how art changes communities' lives. Um, so art is the catalyst for me for a lot of other things. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, uh, the poetry because that is one art form, as can abstract art, I suppose, be where a lot of people think, oh, I don't know how to get there. I can't get exposed to it. I'm not interested in it. And one of the things that Def Jam Poetry did was expose so many people to poetry and allow them to realize, oh, this is relevant. This is now. 
Yeah, I mean, even 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 Russell, um, your brother. When I brought the concept to Russell. As much as he was into rap, he he didn't understand how important poetry itself was. Um, and when I when I, when he went to his first spoken word show, he was like, "Oh, I see what you're talking about." See, I grew up with the last poets and Amiri Baraka and, and those culture and Sonia Sanchez, those cultural icons. Russell grew up in we're only four years difference, but the cultural shift between my age group and Russell's age group was tremendous. Hip hop switched a whole lot of stuff around. So the things that were important to me weren't as important, but it was always important to me that the messages that these poets were having doing got out there and people started understanding through something they could relate to because spoken word was so close to hip hop that the whole generation would listen to spoken word because like people like Black Ice and spoken word poets that talk from the heart of the community and sort of a hip hop voice penetrated deep social messages to these people. And people started waking up. So, I mean, you know, not that they were fully asleep, but when you start hearing this at you coming at you, the whole show was about social change. Poetry as the art form was a wonderful thing, but the social change that it uh, brings about is fantastic. What was it like to see some of those uh, people that were your brother Russell's age or younger get turned on to spoken word who maybe had never heard of the beats or anything like that. What was it like for you to watch them get like just really turned on to it? Um, you know, Bruce George, who first came to me with the concept of making a TV show called, called uh, spoken word, the fifth element of hip hop, you know, beyond breakdancing, graffiti, uh, rapping. And, stuff. and it was so true that when we merged that into the culture, that it just people lit up and that that always turns me on to see people connect with something and people really connected with spoken word in a way that I didn't even think possible. I thought it would be hip and people connect, but I didn't think it would just become a national phenomenon like it did. Um, but I had an idea, you know, I used to go to the before Jeff Poetry, there were plenty of places that did spoken word. We would go and see a whole bunch of people, and it'd be packed. It'd be all people from, quote-unquote, the uh, hip cultural community. And when it crossed over beyond, you know, as Russell used to say, the backpack dudes, into regular hip-hop, to see the response, that, and to see it embraced the way it was, was amazing. I mean, it was the most popular show on HBO. Not only was it embraced by that generation, but spoken word became embraced by all of America. Finally, I want to ask you about uh, Rush Philanthropic and uh, mm. that organization. How did it come about, and and what should we know about it? Um, Rush. Uh, well, it started before Rush, actually. It started with me really um, being an artist and trying to find uh, a venue for the show My Heart. And I went down to, at the time, Soho. And what I noticed was there were no African-American artists in any of the galleries. Um and nobody was really that interested in looking at my work. I said, well, I'll go um, create a place myself. For not for just me, but for other people. I never ended up showing me, but I knew that if I couldn't find a place, there were many, many other artists. And I was new to being an artist because I said I, I had been a social worker. And I created this place at the time called Sanctuary Gallery. And it was um, the basement of my brownstone. 
I went to Russell with the idea and Russell gave me $6,000 to gut out my basement, put up the lights and change my, not my basement, my first floor, my whole first floor, except for the kitchen. Um, my wife wouldn't let me at the time, wouldn't let me uh, destroy the kitchen. Um, and created an art gallery called Sanctuary. And obviously the name relates to what the mission was. And from there, um, I joined some young men uh, who had taken over their father's gallery in Tribeca, New York. And it was called Annex and Next. And we did a number of wonderful shows. Um, and what happened was we never made any money. And so eventually we went out of, we had huge culture, thousands of people, celebrities, everybody came, nobody bought art. Um, uh, long before, you know, I engaged the hip hop community there and really used Russell and Run to drive young people in the hip hop movement to come. And we did fashion shows with Fat Farm and um, Cross Colors and, and FUBU. And then we did poetry. We did everything in that space to draw attention to the arts. And after a year or so, that went. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I need to be able to continue to do this, uh, but I ain't got no money. And I can't keep asking Russell for money. And so I created a nonprofit in, and this is the trajectory, in hopes that people would donate space to me that I could put on these shows. And a few people did, but it got to the point where, you know, I said, I need my own space. And so back to Russell and this time run, and we did a fundraiser um, where we used, there used to be a show called the Black Fine Art Show where all the black galleries in the country and people came. So I rented out the Puck Building um, downtown in, in Soho. And we had a fundraiser with uh, Run DMC and Eartha Kitt. So it was such a disparate thing. And we raised $250,000. And so we opened the gallery in Chelsea and uh, hired some people and gave the rest of the money away to arts organizations that work with kids. We didn't have the capacity yet to work with kids. And um, it started Rush Philanthropic Arts Foundation. It was called Philanthropic because we were giving away money. We were raising money, giving away money, and doing our own thing. Eventually, I noticed that down the block from Rush and all the art galleries in Chelsea were the projects. And the projects were just sitting there, and the art people were on this side, people from the projects were on that side, and it was 10th Avenue, and it was a strong, strong dividing line. And so I went across the street to the projects and found this organization. I didn't even know it was there. I just wanted to see if I could find where kids were and invite them to the art gallery. And I found an organization called Hudson Guild, which is probably the oldest social service organization in New York City. And I talked to the director, a guy named Jim Furlong. And I said, man, you got kids? And he said, yeah. I said, bring them over to the gallery. And that started what we are still doing today is art classes for kids. Um, so that's how Rush got started. Uh, we launched the careers of so many, so many artists that are now uh, nationally and internationally super famous. Kehinde Wiley, he was at one of his first shows there, and Michaeline Thomas and Derek Adams, who was the curatorial director, and Wageshi Mutu and Simone Lee, who just won uh, the Venice Biennale top prize. Um, these artists are super, super famous, and um, they all started at Rush. So, I mean, we, we have a legacy there. And then what happened was I bought a building in Brooklyn that 
had a natural long corridor in it. It was a bunch of three three lofts and a corridor. And I opened the corridor gallery. And we started showing shows in Brooklyn in the neighborhood. And that's where the concept art has to come out of these art spaces that are designated for arts like Chelsea and come into the communities. And so I took one of the lofts and cut it in half and opened not only the corridor space, but another open space for a larger gallery. And we recently closed that um, when I moved to Philadelphia and opened the gallery here in Philly, Rush Arts Philly. Danny Simmons is a poet, artist, writer, and co-founder of Def Jam Poetry on HBO. He'll be performing tomorrow night at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville with guitarist Vernon Reed and bassist Dwayne Dolphin. More details about the event can be found at crystalbridges.org. Time for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. Coming up, we will hear from Republican State Senator Jonathan Dismang of BB. He is the co-chair of the Joint Budget Committee, and he will be busy next month in Little Rock when the governor has called a special session to discuss proposed tax cuts due largely to the state's $1.6 billion surplus. That conversation, plus a rundown of other top headlines this week, are straight ahead on the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create health care solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Governor Asa Hutchinson has called an August 8th special session to consider an accelerated schedule for previous planned tax cuts that will bring the state's top rate down from 5.5% to 4.9%. State Senator Jonathan Dismang is the co-chair of the Joint Budget Committee. In a recent interview with Roby Brock, he said that and other tax cuts can occur now with the state's burgeoning budget surplus of $1.6 billion, but he is hesitant to commit to new expenses, including teacher salaries, until more data is collected. Why are you not going to be worried that it's too much too fast? This is one-time money, and it's a large pot of money. There's no doubt about that. But what's going to be the appetite among legislators if the economy turns, which it can do quickly? That's right. Is it to roll back these tax cuts? Is it to cut the budget? Where do you think, what do you think would happen? No, and I think it's a great question, and it goes back to really what we did prior to even the last session and getting ready to be able to take some uh, risk, if you want to call it that, as far as t- cutting taxes. We currently, uh, you know, have over a billion dollars in our rainy day fund. There's, you know, $1.6 billion essentially, that's going to be uh, a new surplus amount. We can set, a, you know, a significant portion of that aside to ensure that if we do have a reversal and the collections, uh, you know, start drying up, that we've got the ability to, you know, fund state government at the level it needs to be funded. So I feel like we've got 
the proper backstop to be able to take advantage of the environment we're in right now as far as revenues. The governor said no pay raises for teachers. There's not legislative consensus there for that at this time. Lawmakers have been pretty hard on teachers. I mean, accusing them of teaching critical race theory, uh, asking them to do things during the pandemic, solve social problems. My gosh, uh, some people want to arm them now against school shootings. Uh, And when you look around other states, there are increases in starting salaries for teachers. Arkansas is going to lag and it may take another year to get that into effect. Isn't this a mistake to wait on teacher pay raises? I don't feel like it is at this point. We did just install some teacher pay increases. I can't remember the exact amount. And we also took a look at their benefits package and made sure that we made sure their health insurance affordable and continue to be affordable. And so we've we've put a significant amount of money in our teachers because we value our teachers. And right now we're, we're in the middle of what's called um, the adequacy uh, study. And so the legislative body, both House and the Senate are looking at that. And one of the things they'll take into account is what we need to do for teachers. Uh, and, and just like we've done in the past, we'll just, you know, follow uh, the procedures before. And, and that's something that we'll take up when we get into the regular session. Uh, really, it was nothing against teachers per se. Uh, it was against uh, not wanting to increase expenditures in this special session. Uh, members were comfortable with looking at decreasing revenues, but again, not increasing ongoing expenses. And then also, there's a lot of unknown for that and how it would impact a school district. Uh, we didn't want to put mandates on a school district that they weren't able to live up to as far as being able to continue that increased pay for teachers. Uh, but it will be another fiscal year before you could do anything more for teachers if you wait until the regular session there. And that does put Arkansas another year behind what some of these other states are doing. That's going to be a concern. What, what do you hope happens out of the adequacy study? What do you think you just tentatively, you've been around long sure. enough to kind of get a feel for this. What do you think is a realistic pay raise for teachers come next legislative session? What do you hope for? Well, I mean, I, I, honestly, at this point, I don't know that I know. I mean, as far as pay across the board, and again, it's just not in education, but really in all industries, you know, there's been a significant increase in pay uh, in, in a number of areas. And so what is, you know, what does that need to look like as we go into the next session, as we're following along with this, you know, inflationary numbers the way they are, I think it can change. Um but again, as, as far as I know, I, I, again, I don't know what the exact number is going to be. And a lot of that, you're going to have to look at the discrepancies across school districts um, and as far as what teachers are paying and then also incentivizing to make sure we're, we're retaining teachers and keeping teachers and hiring teachers in some places that is very difficult to do so in, in some of our uh, lower economic areas. All right. The governor has said that there's a possibility there will be some other things on the special session call school safety policy, which I want to hold off on since there's a task force kind of rolling over some options there. But he did say that there may be a requirement for some abortion rules that need to be implemented in the wake of Roe v. Wade being um, overturned in the Dobbs case there. He even hinted that there may be some Medicaid flexibility. I trust that you have had some sort of conversation with him on this. What do you think might happen in terms of abortion-related policy in this special session? Well, as far as conversation with the governor's office or the second floor, I I haven't had those, especially on on Medicaid. I know amongst members, uh, there's been some discussion about uh, matching the credit for adoption with that on the federal level. Uh, I think that's part of what the governor is talking about again, but I haven't had the conversation directly with him. And then also these uh, the pregnancy crisis centers. Uh, we, you know, we did a million dollars worth of funding. I think there may be uh, a push to do some additional monies 
uh, for those folks so that they're able to help uh, with, you know, uh, with the pregnancies. Should there be an exception for rape and incest in Arkansas's law? Will that be debated? I don't think that'll be debated now, but I think it should be debated in the future. Uh, you know, as, as long as I've been here, I, I felt as though there needed to be an exception for rape and incest. And I know that we did pass a bill that does not have that in it, but I do think it's something that we should consider. Uh, but I don't think it's something we should do during this special session. That is State Senator Jonathan Dismang talking politics and the upcoming special legislative session with Roby Brock. You can watch that entire interview over at our sister website, talkbusiness.net. In other news this week, Walmart has struck a deal with Canoe to buy 4,500 electric vehicles. Canoe expects to start production of its lifestyle delivery vehicle later this year, and Walmart plans to use them to make deliveries in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro beginning next year. Arkansas State University in Jonesboro has picked Dr. Todd Shields as its next chancellor. Shields has been dean of the University of Arkansas's Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences since 2014. He will begin his new job in Jonesboro August 15th. And the latest inflationary report from marketing firm Numerator says grocery prices have increased more than 15% from a year ago and are up more than 7.5% since the start of 2022. For more news, visit us online at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Lee Wood, our general manager. Hello, Lee. Hi, Kyle. How are you? I'm great because summer's here. Yes, your favorite time. And I'm for that. I know. You know who wrote that lyric? James Taylor. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. <laughs> well, uh, I happen to be in the right room then because we're going to give away three pairs of tickets, seated tickets to James Taylor to three lucky people right now. James Taylor will be at the Amp. On Friday... Uh, July 15th. Which is part of summer. Hopefully he'll sing Summer's Here. <laughs> that would be appropriate. Uh, and maybe these people will be there to hear it. Okay, so congratulations to Mary Beth Haas, uh, Jeremy Floyd, and Kim McComas. All right. And you'll get in touch with them, tell yep. them how to get their tickets? We've got their email addresses, and your the tickets will be at Will Call. We'll let you know about it. And congratulations. Congratulations. One time when James Taylor was playing in Fayetteville? Yes. Because of James Taylor, I got a free plate of spaghetti. That, that might be a story for another segment, <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> Lee Wood is our general manager at KUAF. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Kyle. Summer's here. I'm for that. I got my rubber sand. I got my straw hat. I got my cold beer. I'm just glad that it's here. Summer's here, that suits me fine It may rain today, cause I don't mind It's my favorite time of the year, and I'm glad that it's here This is Ozarks at Large, I'm Kyle Kelms With me is Courtney Lanning, not on our usual day, Courtney No, we are a day early, Kyle And that's because the film we're going to talk about 
you want to give folks in our listening area a chance to see it because there's sort of a special situation here. Right. So the movie is called The Deer King. And this is an anime movie, a Japanese animation. And as you and I have discussed before, Kyle, these typically only have a very short window in theaters. So the theater is only going to have the movie tonight. And it's going to be at the uh, Razorback Theater in Fayetteville. All right. Tonight. So let's talk about this film. You mentioned it's anime, and this sort of has uh, nods to classic forms of, of the medium, right? Right. So, of course, the thing that we always talk about with animated movies is the animation. And, you know, this feels like something that's right out of the 90s. Uh, animation traditionalists will like it because it's, it's all 2D animation. There's no 3D CG to be seen, none that I detected. Um, so, you know, people who like the older 2D animation should be pretty pleased with this. All right. What's, what's our story? The story is layered and a little complicated, but it boils down to two nations that are at war and a disease being spread by wolves called black dog fever or black wolf fever rather. Uh, and, uh, a father and his adopted daughter who are just trying to live peaceful lives who find out they're immune to the disease and they get swept up into all of the war and conflict between these two countries. They're torn between. Wow. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it is. Um, it's, it's a lot. And overall it is a good film. Um, it's narrative might get a little loose or a little lost from time to time. It tries to accomplish a lot, even with a two hour runtime. You know, I, I often ask this when we talk about what other people might call a genre movie or something that is, uh, traditionally thought of as having a, a sort of specific audience. But people who perhaps don't pay attention to these one-night opportunities to see anime, I think from your description, would enjoy this movie whether they've seen anime or not. Right. So if people, even if people aren't anime fans, they just know a little bit about it, it's probably because of one of two things. Something that breached the mainstream like Pokemon or Dragon Ball Z or a legendary filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, whose work is, you know, even if you're not an anime fan, you've probably seen one of his films, whether it's Spirited Away, which won an Academy Award, or Kiki's Delivery Service, or Nausicaa. I mean, he's just got a whole list of films. And his fingerprints are all over this movie, because the two directors, the co-directors that are behind The Deer King, worked with Miyazaki on his films before. So you definitely see his influence here. There's, there's a lot for a generalized audience to appreciate here. Uh, what else is coming out this week? Well, uh, there's a wildly popular book that came out a few years ago, New York Times bestseller called Where the Crawdads Sing. And the movie is out this week. Yeah. And uh, I read that book, uh, interviewed the author, and I'm anxious to see how it translates to a visual. Because, you know, it's one of those books that I have a definite idea of what I want it to look like. But I'm not the director, so we'll see how it turns out. We'll see how it turns out. <laughs> I I could have sworn I attended an event at Rest in Peace, Nightbird Books, where the author came to speak. Maybe. I know that I interviewed her at the Fayetteville Public Library, but and she was at the Bentonville Film Festival just a couple of weeks ago, so she's not a stranger to Northwest Arkansas. Definitely not. All right, that comes out this week. What will we talk about next week? 
Next week, I'll review a new rom-com that's coming to Amazon Prime called Anything's Possible. Will we see the review of The Deer King in the paper? Yeah, on Friday, full review in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Courtney Lanning, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Kyle. This is Leo Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with the beginning of Estudio Tongolele for saxophone and maracas by Mexican composer Gabriela Ortiz. This piece composed in 2012 is titled after a very famous Mexican-American dancer, actress, and vedette, Yolanda Yvonne Montes Farrington, known by her stage name, La Tongolele. Growing up in Colombia through the 70s and 80s, I remember my parents referring often to Tongolele whenever somebody would showcase their dancing abilities in a family gathering. Perhaps they were secretly hoping that one of us could be a successor of such famous international figure. Tongolele's dancing was revolutionary for the time. In this piece, composer Gabriela Ortiz captures the complex rhythms and the sensual movement of Cuban and Tahitian music. Let us listen to the rest of Estudio Tongolele, Tongolele Etude, for saxophone and maracas by Mexican composer Gabriela Ortiz. This version by Adele Van Min performed live at the Andorra Sax Fest in March of 2021. Thank you. 
That was Estudio Tongolele, Tongolele Etude for Saxophone and Maracas by Mexican composer Gabriela Ortiz, performed by Adele Fenmin. Argentinian composer Alberto Ginastera wrote his ballet Estancia in 1943. This multi-movement piece tells the story of a city boy in love with a rancher's daughter. The girl is not so interested until she sees him outdance the gauchos, also known as the Argentinian cowboys, to the complex malambo rhythms in a dance competition to win her heart. Enjoy the energy and exuberance of Malambo from Ballet Estancia by Argentinian composer Alberto Ginastera, interpreted by the Simón Bolívar Youth Orchestra of Venezuela under the baton of Gustavo Dudamel, recorded live at the 2008 Salzburg Festival. listen to the Simón Bolívar Youth Orchestra of Venezuela under the baton of Gustavo Dudamel performing Alberto Ginastera's Malambo from Ballet Estancia. We close today's our Inspired by Dance and Dancers sound perimeter with an excerpt from Rumba Chonta performed by the Colombian ensemble Grupo Bahia. 
This work highlights the African dance rhythms from the Colombian Pacific Coast and its instruments, marimba chonta and drums. I hope I got you out of your seat today with our music inspired by powerful dancers, dances, and dance rhythms. Life is better when you dance. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, teacher pay. Legislators say they want to wait until after next month's special session to raise pay for teachers in Arkansas. A report from Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. Plus, a brand new song from the band Dandelion Heart is available tomorrow. We'll hear that song and talk with members of the band about it and how their sound has changed in the last two years. That and more tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. Plus, you can ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent episode of our show. And you can always find something you missed or want to hear again at OzarksAtLarge.com. KUAF is supported by Format Festival, merging music, art, and technology, September 23rd through the 25th in Bentonville. This inaugural three-day festival features live performances from The War on Drugs, Nile Rodgers and Chic, The Flaming Lips, and more, plus art experiences and installations. For tickets and more information, format-festival.com. One note about my conversation with Courtney Lanning about the new film, The Deer King. Since our discussion, Courtney has let me know that the film will also be shown at the Fort Smith Cinema tonight. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Bella Vista. Contributors today include Jacqueline Froelich, Leah Uribe, Paul Gatling, Roby Brock, and Courtney Lanning. Thanks, Lee Wood, KUAF General Manager, for coming to our studio today. Our show is produced by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Today's Sound Perimeter, produced by Timothy Dennis, the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report, assembled by Stephanie Brock. Additional support for today's show provided by Matthew Moore, who is sitting to my left. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Kyle. You are the producer of the podcast Undisciplined. That's right. And Undisciplined 
of course, it goes out into the digital world, and we found out today some people are listening. Yes, that's right. There's a podcast called This Day in Esoteric Political History. It's a show produced by Radiotopia, one of the nation's largest independent podcast producers. And they had an episode today about the story of Nelson Hackett, which, of course, we had two different episodes about that in our previous season. And at the end of the show, no big deal, they mentioned KUAF and Undisciplined in the podcast. That's great. And while the second season of Undisciplined has uh, been finished, you and Karee Banton are working on the third season right now. That's right, yes. We actually have an interview later today uh, with a man who wrote a book called The Black Fives talking about African-American history of basketball pre-NBA. So really fascinating conversation. We've had several conversations already with other great uh, people and excited to launch season three of Undisciplined this fall. That'll be September, probably? Yes, yep. And if you missed episodes of Seasons 1 or 2, you can find them online. That's right, yes. You can go to KUAF.com. You can look up Undiscipline on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you go to listen. And yes, Matthew, I do want to talk about the World Games. I was hoping so. Good. Taking place in Birmingham, Alabama right now. It's an international competition for sports that are not included in the Olympics. And every day this week I've been asking you about some of those sports, including fistball and canoe polo. Yes, Sad to say, not every sport that is included in past World Games is now included. Mm. Some have moved up to the Olympics, to the big time. Others have just been let go. So I'm going to give you four sports. Uh One of them was never part of the World Games. So tell me which one of these was never part of the World Games. Dragon boat racing, baton twirling, chess, or boomerang throwing. I feel like dragon boat racing is a trick. I um, <laughs> feel like that one's a little too obvious. So uh, baton twirling, what was the third one? Chess or boomerang throwing. I'm going to say boomerang throwing. No, chess has never been part of the world games ah. because they have their own world championships, oh, sure. I suppose. Yeah. And for those of you who are sticklers, it wasn't called boomerang throwing. It was just boomerang. Okay. But I – Thought I'd throw in boomerang throwing. Yeah. Uh, dragon boat racing, baton twirling, and boomerang throwing have all been part of the world game. Good to know. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Kyle. All right. From Studio 120 at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.